Hello, readers. Davey Johnson is a former player and manager in Major League Baseball. As a player, he was a four-time All-Star, three-time Gold Glove Award winner, and a two-time World Series champion. As a big league skipper, he managed the 1986 New York Mets to a World Series championship. His book is called Davey Johnson, My Wild Ride in Baseball and Beyond. Davey, thank you for the time. How are you doing today? It's my, my pleasure to be here, but you forgot that I hit a two-run homer against the Texas Longhorns, and, and uh, they came back and beat us, but... <laughs> That was the highlight of my career. Davey, I got to <laughs> I, I tell you, I was surprised to find that out, that you actually uh, not only played some college ball at Texas A&M, but you also uh, spent your formative years here in the state of Texas, I believe in San Antonio. Uh, what was that like for you going back then? Because uh, I don't know how, how prominent Texas A&M's baseball program was back then, but uh, how near and dear are the Aggies to your heart in this uh, in 2018? Well, they're very dear, but you know, when I was 12 years old, I was playing in a little league game here in uh, Winter Park, Florida, and we were 9-0, and we were beating the Pittsburgh Pirates, and a pitcher for them was named Jackie Bellingham. And my father said, we got to go to San Antonio. I'm transferred to Fort Sam Houston. I said, I'm not going. I'm staying with the Cross family. They built the Winter Park uh, ballparks. He said, no, you're coming. So I, I had to go to San Antonio, and that's where my career started. In uh, I, I also walked across from Fort Sam Houston and introduced myself to a, a little league coach and said, I'm ready to play. If you need another player, he said, where do you play? I said, I'll play anywhere. He said, go back to the hotel. I'll call you. <laughs> now, now, you spent enough time here in this state, although uh, your major league career took you elsewhere. Did you ever acquire that sense of pride of being a Texan? I always felt good about being a Texan. You know, I, I went to Texas A&M. My, my father, my grandfather was a career Navy officer, and my father's a career Army officer, and I went to Texas A&M for two reasons. One, I wanted to play basketball and baseball. I also wanted to get a good education, and I went there because there was no women there, and I thought they would distract me. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's great. Davey, in the preface, you admit that writing this book led you to do something you don't typically do, and that's reflect back as a guy who prefers to keep moving forward. In doing so, uh, the book evolved into, among other things, you setting the record straight about some untruths uh, regarding your life. Is there one glaring example of this that you wanted to make sure to get out there with this book? Oh, there were a lot of things. You know, um, you know, sometimes when you work for a general manager, they, they kind of blame it on the manager when you make a trade. There were things like that. Uh, you know, probably the, the the biggest mistake I made was running over two catchers from Boston, Dwayne Joseph, and then a sublex my left shoulder. But, you know, you, you go full bore, you live your life as best you can and try to do the best you can, that's what you do. Davey, you had uh, an incredibly historic and uh, a lot of accolades over the course of your baseball career, both as a player and manager. Now, outside of that home run you hit here in Austin, Texas, as a member of Texas A&M, do you have a favorite moment throughout your baseball career? You know, probably, uh, you know, I have a lot of great moments. You know, uh, when, I, when I'm, I was about my first year in the big leagues and I got the World Series in 1966 and we went to L.A., and we saw a sign on the way to the ballpark that said, would you believe the Dodgers are four straight? <laughs> we beat Drysdale the first day, and the next day we had to face Koufax. And on the way to the hotel, it, they changed the sign, would you believe the Orioles are four straight? <laughs> but uh, we beat Koufax the next day, and I got a hit off him in the seventh inning. And then he retired. And it was a funny story because the next spring I went to Vero Beach where the Dodgers trained. 
and I went up to Sandy and said, hey, Sandy, how you doing? Good to see you, man. Hey, guess what? Guess who got the last hit off you? I said, what do you think? He said, when I knew that happened, I knew I was washed up. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, That's hilarious. Now, you had a a lot of brushes with greatness in your career, uh, Davey, and that included facing Satchel Paige in an exhibition game when he was 60, which was a year after he became the oldest pitcher to ever appear in the majors. How did that at bat go, and did you have a chance to speak with him after the game? I certainly did. Uh, You know, uh, he walked me, and then after the game, because I was a big fan. I mean, I knew all about him. What great pitcher he threw from every angle and threw about 100 miles an hour, unhittable. And I went up to him, and I asked Satch. I said, Satch, what the hell is your big, best pitch? He says, it's my B pitch. I said, what in the hell is a B pitch? He said, it be where I want it to be. <laughs> <laughs> and I've used that for oh, a lot of pitchers because, you know, nowadays they all look about velocity, and I think command is the most important thing in pitching. No doubt. David, you spent a, a long time as a manager at the major league level, and you've been out of it for, for five years or so now. Is there one thing that you missed the most? I mean, I'm sure you you obviously loved being a manager in baseball because you, you were one for so long, but uh, if there's one thing that you really miss most about being in that dugout every day, what would it be? Well, just the association I had with the players. I, I mean, I, I, I looked after them like they were my kids, and I, the only thing I ever wanted for them to do is to reach their potential. But, you know, I'm not out of the game. I watch, I watch one or two games every day, and then I can second-guess the managers like you guys do all the time. <laughs> yeah, does it feel better on that side, on the couch, than, uh, than being the guy scrutinized for those decisions? Well, it certainly does. The game has changed so much. You know, I was a cybernetics guy early on in the 1960s, and writing programs to optimize oral lineups. But when I see what's going on now with this, you know, uh, launch angle and velocity off the bat, you know, what I want to tell all those people, garbage in the computer, garbage out of the computer. Huh, that's interesting. So you think baseball is becoming a little bit too stats-driven now? No question about it. You know, I mean, I played with some, you know, Frank Robinson, Henry Aaron, Sarhar O, when they, you know, hit by both those guys when they broke Ruth's record. But... They were great hitters, and the main thing they thought about was getting to the ball the quickest way they could, you know, as close to a straight line as you could. Now they think about launch angle and having a bigger swing and having a little upward cut. It's it's all a bunch of crap. Skip, I was I was going to ask you, might have answered it right there, but what what numbers do you look at? Do you like obviously nowadays in baseball there's just hundreds and thousands of numbers and. Half of them, to me, are, are a different language, and they don't make sense. But interesting to hear from a baseball guy like yourself, even you find some of them ridiculous. So if there are a couple that you still look at and still like, what are those? Well, when I look at TV, I watch a guy that uh, has, a, has a short stroke to the ball. And, you know, if you hit off the fastball, you know, you know, one of the things I said in the book, you know, Hank Bauer said, you're a guest hitter. I said, no, I just look for a fastball. And he slammed his hand in the bulk of the air, airplane. I said, he said, you're a guest hitter. I said, no, I look, I time for a fastball because then I have a lot more time to hit the breaking ball and off-speed pitches. Huh. That simple. Yeah, that's fascinating. Now, you were a sabermetrics pioneer in baseball, and it was as a player as well. Uh, a lot of people don't realize this, but you actually had uh, a degree from Trinity down in San Antonio in mathematics. So how exactly did you find yourself so uh, so fascinated by statistics to the point where you were actually bringing stats up to your managers and uh, trying to help them to, uh, to be- do a better job just in terms of uh, managing baseball games? Well, in about 1967, I was in uh, Baltimore, and I, you know, I signed after two years, so I had to keep going, get my degree in the off season, 
And uh, finally, after 160 hours, the closest thing I had was mathematics. But anyway, I went to <laughs> Johns Hopkins University, and I, they had a computer course there, and I took it. And then I also, uh, the Orioles owner had a IBM 360, big, huge computer, but you had to key punch into programming. And I programmed it, tried to optimize the Orioles lineup. And one guy that really influenced me going in my career was a guy named Earnshaw Cook. He wrote Percentage of Baseball. He was the first mathematician that ever thought about on-base percentage. And I always felt that the guys that got on base in front of the very productive home run hitters and extra base hit hitters, that was the way to set a lineup. And so I did. And I used all that. I took it to Earl Weaver one time showed him, I, hey, I be, might be better hitting a second in your lineup. He threw it in the garbage can and told me to get the hell out. <laughs> now, uh, you did play for Earl, uh, both in the minors and then also the major league level as well. Uh, I'm curious to know how Earl Weaver influenced your managerial style and what was the biggest blow-up you ever saw Earl Weaver uh, partake in on the field? Well, he blew up about every day. So that's, <laughs> let me explain that. But uh, he was an intense competitor. But one thing I learned from Earl Weaver, and more so than any other manager, he set up a bullpen and he handled the pitching staff better than any manager in baseball. And what you have to do is you have to have a long right and a long left and then the other setup guys and then your closer. And he used them properly. And I see so many bad jobs done today because they take a young pitcher who should be a long reliever and they pitch him every day. You know, it's it's terrible. So... Anyway, I don't get me started. You guys, don't get me wound up now. Don't get me wound up. <laughs> D- Dave, you were actually, you're, uh, that's interesting that you say that because you're starting to see guys like Andrew Miller and Josh Hader do that long relief role to where maybe they're out of service for a couple of days, but they're so instrumental in, uh, in Cleveland's case, Andrew Miller, and then uh, also Milwaukee for Hader uh, in actually winning specific ball games. Well, it takes so much pressure off the other guys. You know, when they start using one guy in the sixth, one guy in the seventh, one guy in the eighth, one guy in the ninth, if you have that long reliever, he can give you a couple, two or three innings. And then you give him uh, two days off, and then you can bring him back. They don't do it today. They just go with their matchup guys, and, and I think it going to hurt a lot of arms, and I really feel bad about that. Hmm. Davey, you've been a part of uh, of baseball in every decade since the 60s. You you have seen a lot now. You might be a purist, and I might be riling you up a little bit, which you <laughs> just told me not to do. But uh, <laughs> You can rile me up. <laughs> just curious your thoughts on Major League Baseball's seemingly concerted effort to speed up the pace of play. Uh, we've seen all kinds of adjustments in the past couple of years. This year they implemented the, the mound visit counter. Of course, you got the pitch clock and the in-between innings clock going on uh, some of that stuff especially at the minor league level what do you think are, are you on on baseball's side with their efforts to try to speed up the game or do you think it's fine the way it is no i think they should speed it up you know every time that i played behind a pitcher that uh got in a routine and pitched pretty rapidly it was very easy to uh get in the game when these guys take and walk around you know do all this stuff and then you know and, and go through all these motions and whatever and then same thing with the hitters they get out they get out but the pitcher is the guy that controls the pace of the game. And if the pitcher would just get up there, get his sign, and throw it, hit his location, games would go faster. But it all stems from the pitcher. Davey, you mentioned playing with Hank Aaron. You were actually teammates and locker mates with Hank Aaron in 1973 with the Braves. What was he like as a player, a teammate, and a human being? And also, what is your memory of Hank Aaron setting the home run record? 
Well, he was the greatest player I ever was around. You know, I've been around a, great, a lot of great players, Brooks Robinson, Frank Robinson, you know, Sarah, all of Henry Aaron was not only the greatest player, but he was a gentleman. And the, the biggest concern we had was because nobody wanted to break Babe Ruth's record. And he had to stay under a hidden name in, in other hotels. And then when he broke Ruth's record, he only got Magnavox as the only sponsor that gave him, you know, put him on the air, which is terrible because he was uh, the greatest baseball player come along and better than Babe Ruth. Now, you played wow. in Japan for a handful of years in the mid-1970s. Tell our listeners about the time a thumb injury led to your manager yelling at your naked genitals. <laughs> well, that was, that was Nagashima. Nagashima was all-world third baseman, and he was 100% Japanese. I was teammates with Sarhara O. Oh, and uh, uh, I got what they call a shooto on my thumb. And, you know, they didn't realize that it was a big, big injury. And I said, I want to go to the, They wanted to give me a, a, a shot in the neck for one hour a day for 10 days. I said, I don't think so. I'm going to go see Dr. Curlin in L.A. And uh, that's when Nagashima came up and ripped off my town, looked down at me and said, that's a lie. <laughs> It took everything I could have in my power not to keep from decking him. <laughs> <laughs> now, your playing career ended. You you spent one more year in the bigs before your playing career ended in 1978, but you knew pretty immediately you wanted to manage. When did you realize you wanted to be a big league skipper? Well, you know, it's kind of funny because uh, toward the end of my career, and I messed up my shoulder, and I was kind of banged up. And I had another offer to, to go play for, I think it was Oakland, and I turned him down because I remember... Uh, my old uh, football buddy um, from Oklahoma, he was man, He was the football coach at Texas A&M, and he called me and he said, son, don't go to Japan. Stay here. You're an American. And uh, I said, well, I'm going over there because they're doubling my salary, and I think I'm not washed up. But anyway, I went over there and, and played a couple of years, and I enjoyed it. And I did come back and play for the Phillies. Uh, before the end of my career, so it was a great experience. You're very modest about who that Texas A&M coach was. Uh, Davey, yes, I am. Who, who, who was the Texas A&M coach who tried to convince you to stay in the bigs? You know, I'm talking about Bear Bryant. Who the hell else would I be talking about? Paul Bear Bryant was our buddies with, uh, with Davey Johnson and tried to convince him, but Davey was uh, dead set. He also gave me a, a puppy out of his dog, Smokey. Oh, wow. And, uh, he was a good friend, you know, he, but he, he, he was funny. Want me to stay? He said, I'm an American. You can't go over there. <laughs> <laughs> you eventually worked your way through the Mets organization as a manager, eventually landing on the big league club, of course. Uh, one of the crowning achievements for you as a manager was leading that 1986 Mets team to a World Series championship. I'm curious, though, to know how important was the trade for Gary Clark- Carter in the eventual World Series championship with the Mets? Well, he was very important. You know, uh, we, um, we, we had a couple of other good catchers, uh, but uh, he was a, a leader. He was a, a big, you know, I had a bunch of left-handers in the lineup, Hernandez and uh, Dale Strawberry, and I needed an enforcer, and he was an enforcer. So we made some, a couple of good trades. You have to understand, in 84, we won 90 games, and we were outscored by 18 runs. Oh, wow. We were 18 games over 500. In ninety, uh, the next year, ninety-five, we won ninety-eight games. We almost won, and then when we had all the pieces in place, we had Ray Knight, we had Tim Tuffle, we had, we had the bullpen was solid. 
And I told them the next year, I said, we're going to dominate. And we did. We won 108 games and eventually 116 games and win the World Series. Specific to that 1985 season, Davey, just how good was Dwight Gooden in 1985? He was exceptional, you know. And I, I can't explain to you how great a young player he was. He loved to be at the ballpark. He was a switch hitter, whatever. The one thing that I was really upset about, Frank Cashin making him quit hitting left-handed, I said, are you crazy? Nobody's going to hit his right arm hitting left-handed. He could bury somebody at home plate because he has immaculate control and throws about 100. You know, But they made him quit switch hitting. I just wished I could have been a bigger influence on him. But he was the greatest young man for two or three years. He was the first of the ballpark. Always happy to be there, and I was, it's a terrible thing that what's happened to him. Yeah, no doubt. And Skip, you you had some great years as a manager in, in Major League Baseball. I mean, a winning percentage of more than fifty six. And you know, for some of your for some reason, unbeknownst to me, and maybe to you as well, but just curious, your thoughts. I, I didn't think you were given a fair shot or a long enough stint at a couple of your spots as a manager at the major league level. Do you have any idea why why you think that is? Well, I think number one reason was. Uh, being an army brat, you know, I, I would never go over the chain of command. I would only go to the general manager. Uh, he was my boss, and I would try to do the best thing I could for him. Uh, I, it, when I disagreed with him, you know, I think a lot of owners would go to the ownership and, and kind of schmooze them. I never could do that. It was not in my makeup. And I think because of that, you know, I would be the scapegoat a lot of times. They would blame it on. What else can I tell you? Maybe you do. I don't <laughs> necessarily on, get that no sense, Skip. But uh, I, I have to say the most glaring example of that was your stint with the Reds in the 1990s. Marge Schott owned the Reds at the time you were manager there. Of course, she has uh, or had a terrible reputation in terms of just being a person who was a decent to other human beings. I'm curious, though, when... You, when Mark Shot was the owner of the Reds, and you were a skipper there, was she actually in a sexual relationship with another woman? Yes. <laughs> How about that? Yeah, and she used to send me uh, notes during the game from Shotzi. It would never be from her. It'd be licks and sniffs or something from Shotzi. Uh, and the only time she ever had me up in her suite was she served me. A, a glass of wine, Mogan David, and I said, I'm not coming up unless you have a cork in the bottle ever again. (laughs) uh, She liked Ray Knight. In fact, she was messed up about Ray Knight. She thought Ray Knight, Nancy Lopez was was his first wife, was his second wife, and she thought he was Catholic. He wasn't. But I I always said I thought he was maybe pulling weeds in her yard or something. But she loved Ray, and she hired him, and and that didn't work out either. You actually took a punch from one of your former players with the Mets, who was then with you in Cincinnati, the notorious Kevin Mitchell. What the hell happened there? Well, you know, he did a wrong thing, and, uh, you know, I had to find him. And i I'll never forget it, because I was uh, talking to him in the uh, in a little office right behind the training room, and all of a sudden... He didn't like what I was saying, and he pushed me real bad, you know. And I no, I pushed him. I'm sorry. And then he decked me and hit me on the top of the head. I thought it hit bowling ball hit me. <laughs> and then Ray Knight came in and broke it all up. But you know, that was just uh, Mitch. He was tough. Uh, he was standing up for his own deal. He was wrong, but in that particular case, I, I love Kevin Mitchell this day. But Ray Knight saved me from probably getting beat to a pulp. 
Yeah, because uh, uh, Kevin Mitchell, uh, he he had some issues. If you uh, if you struck the wrong chord with him, <laughs> he was uh, not afraid to uh, to go crazy, man, on the situation. Couple more questions for Davey Johnson. Davey, you coached Rafael Palmero for a few years in Baltimore. Is he crazy for trying to get back out there and uh, play baseball in his late fifties? Yes, <laughs> but he was a great player and a great teammate. You know, we had a great ball club. You know, uh, that story, uh, I hired Pat Gillick. I was hired as a manager when I came to Baltimore. And uh, between getting him and uh, Robbie Alomar and uh, a bunch of other players, it was, a, it was a great club. A lot of professionals. Uh, but I can't believe he's trying to get back in the game, you know. You also coached Adrian Beltre in his breakout 2000 season with the L.A. Dodgers. Could you see then how special a player he had a chance to be on and off the diamond? Yes, great athlete. Uh Unbelievable third baseman and, you know, uh, quick bat, uh, just a great guy. You know, he was a little bit different. He he wasn't the most outgoing guy like you would think for the Dodgers would like, but he was just a great player, and he's shown that. He'll be in the Hall of Fame. You've talked about computers. You've talked about stats in the book and then also during the interview today. I'm curious to know if you will ever be okay with computers calling balls and strikes in baseball. Oh, man, that's a tough one. Uh, You know, I don't like uh, going to the replay. I think, you know, players make mistakes. Umpires make mistakes. That's the game of baseball. Just let them go, you know, and deal with it. And uh, now, I mean, otherwise, you know, might as well just go out and play a computer game instead of having players play against players. You know, I mean, the strike zone deal – uh, you know, I watch it all the time, and it drives me crazy. But that's just an umpire. You, as a player, you learn the umpire strike zone. That's the first thing you learn as a player. Some guys are low-ball umpires. Some guys are high-ball umpires. That's part of the game. I hate it for it to go electronic. You know, it's already too electronic. Last thing here for Davey Johnson. Davey, I wanted you to talk about this a little bit because I'm guessing you have not been asked enough about it yet in the interviews that you've done for this book, but you experienced every parent's nightmare in 2005 when your youngest daughter died very unexpectedly. If you don't mind sharing, sir, uh, what do you love most about your daughter, Andrea? Andrea was just like me, a risk taker. She loved to surf. She loved the biggest waves she could find. A beautiful young girl. Uh, I thought she was even thinking about jumping out of airplanes, and uh, but she was the love of my life, and I miss her dearly. And uh, I have a picture all in my house. And, and then Susan, uh, we lost her son Jake. Um, he was a rebella child. He had hearing and vision problems early on, and he he died uh, shortly thereafter. Uh, and the reason I'm doing this book, guys is for, uh, Susan has a great charity, SOS, for uh, underprivileged young girls that get scholarships, and she gives them mentors and money to make sure that they're successful in, in, in their endeavors. And that's why all the proceeds of this book go to her. Well, Davey, I cannot uh, recommend this book enough. It was a a wonderful read for me, and I'm guessing anybody else who's looking for just a really good book. Yeah, it talks a lot about baseball, but there's a lot of life lessons in here as well. I cannot recommend this enough. Davey Johnson, My Wild Ride in Baseball and Beyond. Skip. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, come on, Skip. Love you, Davey. Oh, no. They did not beat A&M this year. Thank you for that reminder, Davey. We appreciate that one. (laughs) Okay. Thanks a lot, Skip. Thank you, Davey. Oh, man.